time. Time is running out. Calling all patriots and lovers of our constitutionally protected, God-given, self-evident, innate legal rights in Tennessee and the United States of America. If you are sickened by the liberty-eroding activities of a government that hates you, then it is time to wake up. If you are fed up with the tyrannical leadership on display by all levels of government, now is the time to listen to your reveille call. If you are equally tired of the political class, the new aristocracy, lying to you in their pursuit of power and control, now is the time to take a stand in the arena. Please welcome your host, Larry Linton, U.S. Navy veteran and candidate for Tennessee House of Representatives to the Liberty Leadership and Lies podcast. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to this week's episode of the Liberty Leadership and Lies podcast. Today's episode on leadership, we will be interviewing somebody that has been an outstanding advocate for restoring Tennesseans' constitutionally protected right to keep and bear arms. Mr. John Harris, the Executive Director of the Tennessee Firearms Association, joins the podcast once again. We'll discuss some legislative priorities for the TFA and the new General Assembly and other things. I hope you enjoy the interview as much as I did talking with this fine gentleman. So, here we go. Thank you for having me this morning. Yeah, I'm John Harris. I'm actually an attorney practicing in Nashville, Tennessee. But for the last 28 years, I've served in a volunteer capacity as the executive director for the Tennessee Firearms Association. And the TFA is a uh, nonprofit organization that's recognized by the IRS as a 501c4 issue advocacy group, and we focus on Second Amendment issues primarily, uh, almost exclusively Second Amendment issues in Tennessee, and then connected with that, we get involved in other areas that are of interest or significance to gun owners, and that may be things like some Tenth Amendment issues from time to time, some Fourth Amendment issues from time to time. Uh, issues pertaining to uh, zoning regulations for gun ranges and uh, and even hunting, uh, you know, like access to public lands for recreational shooting and hunting issues. So that's typically what we uh, pursue as an organization. And then we have a, a separate organization called TFALAC, Tennessee Firearms Association Legislative Action Committee, which is a state... Uh, state PAC that we use to uh, support financially candidates uh, that are running for office that we think are going to, you know, uh, make a difference if we can get them elected. Good deal. I think we need a, we need a lot of them, but I, you know, what I believe is that it shouldn't take PAC money to get people to actually look at the plain language of our constitution and, you know, legislate from that position. So You're exactly right. But the sad fact is it does. I mean, when I started doing this almost three decades ago, really anybody, any citizen had the ability to run a credible race, particularly for the state house, because the, the vote turnout on the state house races were typically maybe ten to 15,000 voters. You could you could door knock, you know, on a long enough election cycle, 
a lot of that. You could do public speaking. You could get on uh, radio, even if you didn't get on local TV. And you could raise, you know, ten to fifteen thousand, maybe, and and run a credible race with mailers and postcards and stuff like that. And, and it has become, unfortunately, in Tennessee, a situation where too many legislative seats and other elected seats at the state level are are really bought and sold by those who can afford it. I give you an example. We were involved in going after. Um, Deborah Maggart, who was the number three person in the House on the Republican side back in 2012. And we spent a lot of money, TFALAC did, on that race, spent a lot of effort. Uh, NAGAR, National Association for Gun Rights, came in and spent money. The NRA spent money. All of the money spent by these gun rights organizations was to defeat Maggart. And what we what we learned after the fact, even though we successfully beat her with a Tea Party leader, uh, Courtney Rogers, a retired lieutenant colonel from the Air Force, is that that race consumed about three quarters of a million dollars a decade ago, just on a state house race fighting over fifteen thousand votes. Wow! And, and and so you see now this situation where. Uh, you know, a House incumbent, it's not uncommon to see them, uh, particularly if they're popular with the Commerce, you know, Chamber of Commerce uh, or leadership uh, funding sources, having access to three or $400,000 to defend their seat for re-election. And then challengers are left, unfortunately, with the fact that they may have to raise 100000 plus just to be able to have a voice in the election cycle. Yeah, I could definitely see that from, from my end. Uh, rival for this seat is definitely much better funded. I'm, I'm mostly self-funded. You know, somebody told me once that uh, politics is a rich man's game, and, I'm, and the answer to that is, well, uh, I'm not rich and I don't play games, so I'm just going to do this for the people to restore their sovereign position over the state and the federal government. And that that needs a a strong Second Amendment advocate. It does, it does, and and, and even if you have one, because we have candidates all across the state, like yourself, that that would be much better than the incumbent, because the incumbents have proven their uh, characteristics for failure when it comes to representing the constitutional parameters that are at issue. Absolutely, and and, and and unfortunately for most of the incumbents, whether they're Democrat or Republican, they're beholding to, and their voting records show that they support their agendas, their priorities, other than constitutional principles. So they're, you know, if they're on the left, they're going after Planned Parenthood, or uh, you know, corporate, not corporate welfare, but general welfare at taxpayer expense and they're pursuing you know nancy pelosi's type of agendas in tennessee now but on the right what we're seeing is instead of doing things like passing real constitutional carry which has as a practical matter zero budget impact on tennesseans to restore to them a constitutionally protected right 
you know, instead of doing that, they give a, a billion dollars to Ford to come to, you know, West Tennessee to build a electric vehicle plant. They give a half a billion dollars to Nashville to, to build or to go towards the funding of a new, you know, domed stadium for the Titans. And, and they've, what they've done is they've pursued chamber of commerce issues on the Republican side at a much higher uh, rate of interest and passage than they have focused on fundamental constitutional rights because they need to really get those constitutional principles cleaned up, fixed, and shored up in Tennessee before they ever spend a bunch of time or money on these Chamber of Commerce issues. Absolutely. You remember what uh, Rush Limbaugh called the Chamber of Commerce? I re- refresh me. He called them the Chamber of Commies. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's it. You know, they, their God is cash flow and profits rather than, you know, the true God or even basic constitutional principles that the founders, I think, in many respects, put in place based on the wisdom and guidance that they had from him. Oh, absolutely. Our our constitutions are are biblically founded. All of our founding documents are. Yes. So so true. And anything that deviates from that, we already know what the what the reason for it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So what do you see as the, the legislative priorities for you guys this uh, or your organization this coming new General Assembly? Well, you know, that's a, that's a very fair question. And, 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 I'll, and I'll start off by saying I started doing this back in the era when the Democrats had the supermajority, you know, in the mid-'90s. And, and we were able to pass gun laws then with a combination of Republicans who were in the minority and really fought for, uh, and at least showed more effort towards constitutional advances. And rural Democrats, which are not the Democrats of today, they were really yellow dog, you know, Democrats that uh, were Southerners in heritage and that had a lot of core principles that uh, reflected Republican concepts. I mean, you know, think about it. John F. Kennedy is probably more of a conservative than many Republicans serving in office today. Oh, absolutely. And I think the the, and, the Democrat yeah. Party today would try to cancel JFK. <laughs> well, they, they you know, absolutely. And in fact, they have. Look at John DeBerry, a Church of Christ preacher in Memphis, did a great job served as a Democrat, but he stood up for right to life. And so they, they disowned him and, and blocked him from running for reelection. They tried to do the same thing this year to Representative John Mark Wendell, who's been there 30 plus years, you know, serves in the, in the, in the state guard as a, uh, as a Colonel. And they, they were going to, you know, let him requalify and then and then decertify him as a bona fide Democrat that would have taken him off the ballot. So he's running over in Overton County as an independent, and I think he's going to get reelected as an independent. Well, that's good. That uh, gives me hope. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, there's that opportunity out there, and uh, and it's where the, the the Democrats have gone so far. But what I was going to say is, 
when we started off back in the in the mid-90s, we were talking about Vermont carry, which is what we call constitutional carry today. We were talking about getting rid of gun-free zones. We were talking about changing the laws in Tennessee, predominantly statutes and, and, and local regulations, so that the Second Amendment's guarantee of keeping and bearing arms uh, was, in fact, the reality in Tennessee. And and for years, the Republicans, you know, who were the minority party, would pull us aside and say, you know, John, if, if TFA helps us get the majority, gets the control, you know, we're going to fix this and we're going to, you know, because you know us, we're the, we're the party of the Second Amendment. And, and in fact, at that time, the ones that were there and their voting records and their willingness to carry bills, that was a, there was a lot of truth in that. But what happened is in, in, uh, in 2010, you know, Bill Haslam comes in and runs for governor and essentially spends $17 million buying it instead of earning it. Right. And, and then at the same time, the, the, the House and the Senate, the Senate had done it a few years earlier, uh, became uh, Republican majorities and, and quickly became super majorities. And what we saw was the, the, the composition of the Republican caucuses in the General Assembly went from the conservative agenda-driven focus, they moved left. And, and they essentially took the conservatives and the constitutionalists in this state for granted on the, and this came right from Deborah Maggard, on the theory that, well, you're going to vote for us anyhow, and if we want to get our supermajority shored up, then we've got to advance issues that are important to moderates and centrists and people that don't know if they're a Democrat or a Republican because we want their votes. So it was driven by power rather than principle uh, once they came into power in 2010. And what we've seen in the last 12 years is that without exception or without many exceptions, the Republican Party, once it got control, did not honor the promises and assurances it had made prior to 2010 that upon becoming king, so to speak, they would fix the problems in Tennessee on Second Amendment issues. So as we move into 2023, we're looking at we need to still pass real constitutional carry. And, and, and you know, there's a lot in the legislature that will tell you incorrectly that we have it now. And it's a reflection of the fact that they just don't know what real constitutional carry is. We want to see, uh, and in large part, we've asked for this for decades now, but we think there's an increased urgency with the decision by the U.S. Supreme Court this summer in the Bruin case to eliminate gun-free zones, to eliminate restrictions on handgun only, to repeal state regulatory provisions that say no one can have a handgun anywhere near a daycare facility. I mean, we're just covered up with these prohibitions and restrictions that Democrats and bureaucrats have imposed on us, and yet for reasons that have no good justification, the Republicans over the last 12 years, as, a, as an entity, not necessarily individuals, but as an entity, the Republican caucus has refused to take action on. Absolutely, and that, that Bruin case is a ripe opportunity now to do all this, but 
I just don't see it happening because the the party, like you said, is is about power, not principle anymore. Yeah, in in, in many respects, it's 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 power over principle, and and even if you got down to the principle level, there's a serious question as to what those principles now are and what controls them, and and is that the Constitution, is that biblical standards, or is that uh, principles that are important predominantly to the Chamber of Commerce and big business. Right, and they're principles that, I, like I've said in the past, they're, they're as firm as a, like a Twizzler stick. They change with, the, with whatever is happening in society. Principles are principles, and they should be foundational and unchanging. Yes. And so... Well, that's that's my gut feel on it, and that's why I that's why I decided to to jump into uh, running for office because, like I said, both parties they're they're getting to be two sides of the same coin. Uh, they don't represent actual any any close semblance to what is constitutional anymore. It's all about party power and control and whatever it takes to get there. Constitution be damned. Well, exactly. And, you know, you look back in Tennessee's history, and and this is a this is an unfortunate fact, but it's a true fact. You know, TFA uh, was an amicus party, which means we filed a brief in the U.S. Supreme Court with Gun Owners of America and some others as co-brief uh, writers in the Bruin case, and, and so we had a, an, a, an active role in supporting what ultimately became the Bruin decision. And, and as a result of that, I was listening remotely to the live stream of the oral arguments back last November when they took place on the Bruin case and heard you know, live the question and answers from the judges and the responding attorneys. And it was a point in time in that discussion where one of the justices asked the attorneys representing the state of New York, can you give us some historical examples of states that have a long history of regulating and and restricting the uh, power or the capability of their citizens to uh, carry firearms for self-defense? And literally, one of the first states they mentioned was the state of Tennessee. Now, for Tennessee to be a southern state and and, and for movies like Shooter with Mark Wahlberg to say that Tennessee is the patron state of shooting stuff, you know, we've got a reputation as a volunteer state, as a gun-friendly state. And I think it's true with respect to the citizens on the street. But our government in Tennessee has a long history, one that was referenced in Bruin, one that's been brought up in even decisions since Bruin, of having a long history of having laws, uh, some of which were race-based, many of which are just unjustifiable under the Second Amendment, that basically prohibit gun owners from carrying firearms for self-defense. And in fact, as we speak this morning, that law is still on the books. In Tennessee, uh, we have a statute, 39-17-1307A1, that makes it a crime for anyone to carry a firearm with the intent to go armed. There's only two elements, carrying a firearm with the intent to go armed. Now, you hear 
legislators and Bill Lee say, well, no, no, we're a constitutional carry state. But the fact is they either don't understand or they're intentionally misrepresenting to the people when they say that what we are. What Tennessee has is a law, unlike most other states, that makes it a crime to have a gun for armed purposes anywhere. And then we have a, a list and a set of defenses that you as the citizen have the burden of demonstrating to a police officer, to a district attorney, and ultimately to a judge that gives you a statutory defense to that criminal charge. And those defenses include things like you're in your own home. You're, you're on your own property if you're a landowner. You're at your own place of business that you have a handgun permit or that under the law that passed with Bill Lee's uh, leadership, so to speak, in 2021, that you meet all seven of the tests that apply under that law to being able to carry in public. But all of them, the problem is all of those, whether it's your own home, you have a permit, whatever, they're all defenses. They're all statutory defenses to a criminal charge, and the burden is on the citizen to show the facts that warrant the defense. But in every instance, if the officer so chooses, that individual could be arrested or cited or charged simply for carrying with the intent to go armed, even on their own property. That's just that's just terrible. And it's antithetical to the U.S. Constitution and our, and the first law of nature, right, of self-defense. Oh, absolutely. But but yet, go across the state, look at the campaign literature, probably from your opponent even, and they'll tell you that Tennessee's constitutional carry, that they voted to support constitutional carry. And it's just not true. Right. Uh, you know, now they may be, and I, and I think this is true of a lot of them, they may just be uh, saying what they've been told the effect of that law was. And so it's a question of, you know, is the law really uh, as they represent to someone reading the law? Or is the uh, pulpit doctrine, so to speak, that they got from their preacher in the, in the caucus uh, more accurate. And, and the fact is, anybody that, that has looked at these statutes and the statutory structure concludes that Tennessee is not a constitutional carry state and it is unwarranted for any elected official or candidate for office to make the claim that it is. Right. You know, I, I addressed a similar subject with, uh, with the school board here in one of my talks with them, which they don't like me to do. But anyway, when when a, an elected official doesn't enforce or doesn't follow the law, it's fr- comes from a place of t- one of two places. It's either ignorance or corruption. So if you fix the ignorance by letting them know, hey, that is not the truth, then if they continue to operate that way, it's from a place of corruption. So it's ignorance or corruption for not following the Constitution or not telling the truth to their constituents. If they do, if they don't tell the truth, it's ignorance or corruption, and you can fix the ignorance. The corruption you have to expose. Correct. And you know we have on our website because we we archive it whenever we get opportunities. 
uh, video clips of uh, Senate Judiciary Chair Mike Bell, Senate Judiciary Member Kerry Roberts, uh, House uh, Republican Leader William Lambert, who carried the bill for the governor, and, and even uh, a radio interview that Speaker Sexton did with a Nashville radio host. All of those video clips or audio clips contain information where the person either directly says this is a constitutional carry, but it is a step towards constitutional carry, which has got some truth to it. Or, or they otherwise make statements that support the conclusion that this 2021 law that the governor and others are calling constitutional carry falls short of what the Second Amendment requires. So, I mean, they knew, and, and we've got several of them on record. Now, the ones that are on record, uh, particularly the Senator Bell and, and Senator Roberts, were quite frank about it, that they were voting for the bill which they did not call constitutional carry because they did see it as moving the ball further down the field using the terminology from Senator Bell. Uh, Speaker Sexton on the radio interview said that, you know, it's, it's better than where we were, but it's, you know, we're still going to have to fight to get constitutional carry. And you got to wonder about that. I mean, this is the Speaker of the House with 73 out of 99 members being Republicans under his wing, and why is it he couldn't muster over a two-year window that he's been Speaker 50 votes from caucus members to pass real constitutional carry? Well, I I really don't have to wonder. I know, because he doesn't really want it. Because that's the only excuse. If you have the if you have the majority in the caucus and you publicly state that you want to get constitutional carry and you can't, it's because you really don't want to. Because <laughs> you can whip those votes. Can be drawn. Yeah. Absolutely. So what do you see as the biggest focus for your organization coming up, this new assembly? Yeah, we, we've got a couple of issues. We've got a long list of issues, but we got to prioritize what we think we can do. So we try to always focus on three to five that we think we can get in a cycle. And then as we get those, you know, new issues surface, but we're looking at getting rid of this law. I mean, we can get to real constitutional carry in Tennessee by deleting one sentence. It's not a major lift. We delete one sentence, Tennessee becomes a real constitutional carry state. We want to get to that point. Uh, there's a lot of opposition to that from public officials, from the Tennessee Sheriff's Association, from the Tennessee Chiefs of Police Association, from the District Attorney's Conference, uh, and, and to, uh, from a lot of legislators who just don't think Tennesseans are responsible enough to have a real constitutional carry. Uh, we want to, under Bruin, get rid of as many gun-free zones as possible, particularly those that are on uh, publicly-owned properties like public parks, greenways, public campgrounds. All of those are gun-free zones unless you meet one of the exceptions. And, and really, the only exception is that you're either law enforcement or that you have the Tennessee permit. So if you're carrying with the governor's permitless carry law, 
and you go into a public park or you walk in a greenway, you've committed a crime. Well, that's nuts. Absolutely. But that's one of our agendas. We want to fix these gun-free zone issues as many as we can. We were on a bill the last two years that to anybody that's watched the Kyle Rittenhouse case um, would appreciate. And there's seven states. Uh, Florida is one of them, for example, uh, running back to the George Zimmerman era, that have criminal procedures in place where a judge can, before you ever get to a jury, uh, evaluate whether or not the state has adequate evidence to go forward with on the issue of negating whether a particular incident was self-defense. And uh, we think that's critical legislation to pass because there is a tendency of these Democrat district attorneys, particularly in the major blue cities in Tennessee, to wrongfully upcharge people who've been involved in a self-defense incident um, in order to make the risk of staying in prison on a first or second degree murder charge uh, so serious that they'll take a plea bargain to maybe a manslaughter charge uh, rather than risk a trial. And so we saw uh, the district attorney here in Davidson County prosecute a Metro police officer who shot at an individual that was running away with him, but quartered with a handgun, uh, officer shot and killed that individual. Uh, all the videos strongly suggested that it should have been a self-defense scenario. Uh, the DA here in Nashville charged him, a young officer with serious, uh, homicide charges. And rather than risk, you know, this young man and his family going to prison for 20 or years or more, he ended up taking a plea deal where he spent about a year in a local jail, and he'll be out, I think, this December. But that's a travesty of justice, and it only occurred because Tennessee doesn't have a structure, a means to test whether or not and to discourage district attorneys from these upcharging tendencies and and force these district attorneys to put up real evidence that they can prove beyond a reasonable doubt to a jury that it was not self-defense. And we've run that bill two years. We got good traction on it in the House, but uh, Senator McNally's leadership in the Senate just saw it go nowhere. Yeah. It's terrible, terrible that's the, that these elected officials cannot see the Constitution for what it is. I mean, it's plain language. In the, it's written in plain language. The Federalist Papers that describe everything in it is written in plain language, but yet we're, we rely upon modern interpretations to uh, dictate policy that is antithetical to our Constitution. Absolutely. So who do you see as a, a, the best advocates that you can work with coming in this new General Assembly? I mean, if I get elected, well, I'll probably be your biggest one, but 
<laughs> you know, we've, we've, we've got a number of people coming in, predominantly in open seats, that, that we think are going to help change the balance of the caucus. Uh, on the House side, we, we have had strong support, and, and we feel like they at least understand the issues, even if their peers aren't helping, from representatives uh, like Clay Doggett, uh, who's a chair of the, uh, well, he was, they're going to restructure, so we don't know where he'll be this year. But he was the chair of the Criminal Justice Subcommittee, uh, Representative uh, Chris Todd, Representative Jay Reedy, uh, Representative uh, Rusty Grills. Uh, you know, and it's interesting that those are predominantly from West Tennessee uh, rural areas. Uh the, the Republicans that represent places like Williamson County, uh, Senator Johnson, we don't see a lot of support from those. You know, it's the rural Republicans, like it used to be the rural Democrats, where we see Second Amendment support. Uh, we see some support from, uh, on the Senate side, Senator Bailey, Senator Hensley, Senator Roberts, uh, but, you know, having having some good sponsors just isn't enough if the leadership, if if the caucus leaders, if the caucus chairs, if the speakers of the respective houses aren't on board to help, you know, educate, using a, a term we've discussed already, their caucus members, that these are constitutional mandates. You know, these are not... Um, aesthetic decorations where they've got a wide latitude. The Constitution imposes threshold mandates, and we don't meet them in Tennessee at this point. And we haven't met them in Tennessee for nearly, well, in excess of two centuries now. Right. Exactly. Yeah, so the leadership in both houses is, are failing in their duties to actually be educated on the Constitution. Well, they may understand it, but they're not putting enough of a priority on it. Uh, and I think particularly uh, Speaker Sexton understands it. What I don't know is why is there no mandate coming out of his office? Well, we And then we haven't seen one in the last couple of years that says, caucus members, this, is, this needs to be a priority of my leadership, my era as Speaker. And I want to see this. I want to see good bills put together, bring them to the floor. Let's debate them. Let's pass the right stuff. I'm not seeing that. Yeah. Now, they did that when it was time to pass the billion dollars for Ford Motor Company, and they did that when it was time to pass, you know, litigation civil immunity for the uh, businesses and the manufacturers of the COVID vaccines, and they've done that in other areas, uh, but, but they haven't done it on Tenth Amendment issues, on Fourth Amendment issues, on Seventh Amendment issues. And, and, and critically, from our organization's perspective, on, on Second Amendment issues. Right. They don't do it on constitutional issues. They do it on economic issues. Right. I mean, you know, they've, they've got a huge floor right now, if you look at your ballot, to, to amend the state constitution to remove a provision that restricts preachers from serving in the General Assembly. Well, well yeah, it's been there, but mm-hmm. nobody's enforced it for a century. Right, and I just think, well, I've discussed these four amendments. The first three are just uh, 
they're they're too vague in their language, and the fourth one was just added on there to make the first three palatable. Yeah, yeah. You, you gotta ask why all of a sudden, after two and a half centuries of existence, roughly, does Tennessee need four amendments, three of which are really just window dressing? Right. And and it, they're very vague in their in their wording. And when you put up vague amendments, that leads up to interpretations later on down the line that are could be it that is politically driven instead of constitutionally driven. Right. I mean, a few years ago, the NRA came in here, and and we did not support this. They ran a constitutional amendment on the right to hunt and fish. Well, on its face, hey, I would support a constitutional amendment that says the citizens of this state have a right to hunt and fish. I mean, that existed in the 1700s. It existed throughout the 1800s. It existed in much of the 1900s. You know, and then TWRA comes on the scene and and spoils it for everybody. But uh, they took that constitutional amendment and they put squishy language on it that makes it so vague that it is a practical window dressing as opposed to a practical protection. Right. And that's, and that seems to be commonplace with that. Why change it? I mean, it's just, it baffles me. I think, you know, I asked the question, who actually benefits from these amendments? And if it isn't the people directly, then don't do it. If it looks like that, it benefits. So correct. If and it, you look at that, Larry, and you got to just go back a few years to the Haslam administration, and they ran the constitutional amendment that it, it convinced Tennesseans to vote for this, which is so frustrating. Where Tennesseans, as a matter of constitutional amendment, surrendered their rights to vote for the appellate judges in Tennessee, the Court of Appeals and the Tennessee Supreme Court. Prior to this amendment, our Constitution said the citizens have the right to select their judges. And the Republicans, under Haslam's leadership, ran legislation that that took that away from the citizens and gave complete authority to the governor to appoint who the judges in the state, the appellate judges would be in the state. So, and and there's no there's no excuse for that, and there's no excuse for Tennesseans to have looked at that and voted for it. And I submit they didn't look at it. What they saw was TV advertisements that talked about, you know, from Republican uh, spokespersons that you know vote yes on whatever the amendment number was. So that's all you hear from them. Right. They don't explain it. They don't go into the details. They just run an ad that says the Republicans say vote yes on one. Yep, it's 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 always fishy. If you don't explain it, there's got to be a reason why it's not being explained. And if it takes away the liberty of the people, they should never approve it. Because why why give up your sovereignty? <laughs> right. Well, John, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, I thank you for taking the time out of your day and uh, talking with me here and. Like I said, I hope to uh, work together more closely with you here in the future. I mean, even if I don't win, I, I'd still am a, a big, you know, Tennessee Firearms Association. I'm a member. I'm a member of the Gun Owners Association of America. 
And I'm a big Second Amendment advocate. Like it, like it, like I've always said, it's plain language, and it's been interpreted by people incorrectly for generations now. So, I oh, hope, absolutely, yeah. So again, thank you for uh, taking the time out of your day, and uh, I hope you have much success in your advocacy here in the future. Very good, thank you, Larry. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Bye bye. Right, bye bye, John. With that, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed the interview. In closing, this week's wisdom from God's Word comes to us from 1 Timothy 3.1. Here is a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Mr. John Harris and his organization are engaged in a noble task. He and the Tennessee Firearms Association are exercising leadership and taking a stand in the arena in defense of our constitutionally protected right to keep and bear arms. Those so-called elected leaders in our General Assembly that are opposed to protecting our rights are engaged in an ignoble task, meaning their work is of low character or low quality. It is not noble. Whose leadership do you desire more of? Those who engage in noble or ignoble tasks? We all have the ability to make that decision in the voting booth every election cycle. Will you take a stand in the arena with me so that I too can engage in the noble task of restoring foundational constitutional principles to our form of government, to restore servant leadership to elected office? Or will you allow the continuation of the same old, same old? Those that are more devoted to serving the moneyed interests that pollute and dilute our constitutionally protected rights. Those that are engaged in ignoble tasks. Early voting is happening now, and Election Day is less than two weeks away. Each of us has the ability to choose whose side we stand on in our system of self-governance. Until next week, stand in the arena with me. Reveille, it's time to wake up.